Welcome to Filmmaking Frame, the podcast that interviews industry professionals to find out what they would tell their younger lives, to offer tips and tricks to help people who want to enter the world of the silver screen. With us today, we've got Marcus Nolan, unit manager extraordinaire, who has been in Antigua recently, a country where he told me the price of rum was cheaper than water. I'm booking a flight tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Great to have you with us, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. As always, this is my co-host, Tom Dexter, and I am Daniel Hughes. Hello, hello. So, Marcus, can you tell us a little about your background and what led you to the world of filmmaking? Oh, so, background. Um, I studied film production at University of the Creative Arts in Farnham, and I actually specialised in sound. So, finished university, um, little did I know COVID was about to happen, Um, (laughs) and I had got an email about a a post house in Soho to do post sound. Um, Absolutely loved it. Um, Never actually got back to them. I was was always just thinking, am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? Could never make up my mind. And in the end, COVID happened. And my neighbor sort of runs a a company that does up buildings in London. And he said, look, we've got got a little project down the road. Did you want to help out some Romanian builders, builders and sort of run the project there so it's sort of it was sort of like a project manager so i'd just make sure everything was happening on site as it needed to happen um and try to save them on a, a lot of, on a lot of labor probably um so i spent i spent a summer doing that and um kira who's my girlfriend um her cousin had actually gotten into film and she said oh my cousin's giving me a call and uh and she said do i want to do a day on hobbs and shaw the new Fast and Furious film. And I said, no way, you're joking me. Why have you been asked to do this and not me? I'm the one that's into cars. (laughs) (laughs) She hates cars. And uh, so I ended up saying to her, I said, look, you need to get me a job on this. Like, seriously, (laughs) you need to get me a job on this, thinking there's going to be fast cars everywhere. It's going to be amazing, right? Anyway, managed. she managed to get me one day and uh, no cars, only motorbikes, sadly. But, you know, I can't complain, right? <laughs> so that was my first day as a, as what's called a marshal. And for anyone that doesn't know, um, sort of in locations, the entry point into, into the location department in film is is by marshalling. And so it's, you're right at the bottom of the food chain, but you sort of, um, you sort of help out. Um, I guess marshalling comes from helping direct the flows of people and vehicles and various things around around a film site um and so i started started on that job and um well, i got sort of uh, swept into it since since then <laughs> and one thing's led to another and uh, and actually i was quite lucky um i i think someone gave me a bit of advice and it was to to get on facebook and join a group which was i think location department juniors in film or, or, or a group similar to that and uh, and so i joined that group and a few a few different people post job opportunities and things like that on there and i saw a job opportunity for a, for a show shooting oh, where was it it was a i mean it, it, this was with you daniel so it was it was at the uh, it was at that aerodrome up it was in, in bovingdon. bovingdon bovingdon it was in bovingdon and i thought you know what that's half an hour away i'm gonna just say yes to it and i was very nervous i didn't have a cv at the time or anything like that and um i said yeah i'd be up for it and um i forget i think i think someone sent me a message on facebook and i said right i'll be there tomorrow and that's how it started and it must have been maybe 
two or three months really that I was that I was marshalling and then and then it went from there. Sadly, it was only one to two. Was you, it one to two? Oh, and, okay, and the reason okay. was, and I have I had a long night in the soul about this. You were so good, I needed to recommend you for a more senior position on someone else's oh, job. Okay. And I remember getting some stick from the team that I'd like taken you out of our <laughs> march. Oh. So, yeah. Was that Britannia? That was Britannia. Were you, uh, I, did Zant- a, I did a couple Zant- of days on that. Yeah, Zant- yeah, Zant- you were on yeah. that. Yeah, and it was great, actually. I really, really enjoyed it. It was good fun. Do you mind explaining to listeners, when you say you've got a day on something, how yeah. the recruitment for working on a set works? So, Sure. Great so, I question. Mean, I guess it's it's very different to a lot of diff- to, to a lot of other in- other industries. Um, and to get recruited in locations, I think you've just got to be incredibly switched on, right? And it's all about the, the well, like a job interview in some ways. It's all about that first interaction with the team, with other people you work with. And I think um, they obviously invited me to come in on that day, and the way you've got to look at it is you've got a day to prove to other people what you can do and how you can be of help because there are loads of people that want to join the film industry every single day, right? So how can you show that you've got a specific set of skills that will work well in a team and you can crack on with stuff really? Um, and luckily the day was a, was a lot of manual labor <laughs> and I just come off a building site with, with some lovely Romanians. And so, you know, this two sort of went hand in hand and and in general, it was a lovely crew anyway. So I think we all got on quite well, really. Yeah. And so then you're you 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 brought on daily, initially, and then you can get a full contract. Yeah. So I think I think it's very much word of mouth, and there are always openings in the film industry. And so I, I came on daily. I got recommended for a few other jobs, and actually the people who were in management, Daniel, one of them. Um, I said, well, look, it'd be really great having you here to help us out with the remainder of the shoot. Can you stay on? And and it basically went from there. And I received received a, a, a sort of short term contract through the production company at the time. And they they said, look, you know, we we can give you work for what it was maybe like a month or so contracted work. And you you sign a little form and sign your contract. And that sort of though, though interestingly, you stayed a daily all that time. Ah, so. <laughs> so how did that work then? The, uh, I basically. So you, do you st- I still signed a contract, didn't I? Yeah. Daily signed the exact same contract. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was well, not a contract. It's a. It's basically it's a your payment thing, right? forms. So you have to fill out all your not. payment information. It's not even that. It's not even that. It's literally just your payment information, and you're being booked as a contractor for that day. Okay, but, but you yes. are PAYE. So that's are, where you're yeah, different. Yeah, you're not a yeah. full contractor because you don't invoice. Exactly. So you're on PAYE, PAYE, but basically the production manager, well, your manager will tell the production manager what hours you've done or yes. what days you've done, yeah. and then you're just paid that way. Too many contracts, guys. There you go. <laughs> in fact, I was, in fact I was, you were right to call me on that. You weren't ever a contractor. You were an employee. Yeah, but you were okay. an employee for that day and then for another day and then for another day. And we just strung those days together went on yeah wow it was quite an important tip for people trying to get into the industry get really on top of filling out your forms yeah because coordinators will hate you if you don't some people do not and then they then they you delay get paid because you tend to get paid weekly yes so if you don't fill out your timesheets and all your pay information up front 
you're not paid that week, you pay the week after. If you don't do it then, you get paid the week after that. And eventually, you get, if you get to the end of the job, it's a nightmare having to try and it's keep snowball, on top of it. It's a isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's really, really to bad. always keep on top of your payments. Yeah, yeah. You're so, right. so I'm curious, how would you describe your department's role in filmmaking to someone outside the industry? We are, as a location department, how would I describe our office within all the other departments? Um, we are the so to your uncle Bob, who knows nothing about film and TV. He's like, so what do you do all day, Bob? Hey, I'd probably say we facilitate everything prior to the creative departments coming in and filming. So we facilitate setting up of uh, the setting up of a filming location. We we also find that filming location. And and offer it to the to the director or DOP and say, look, what do you think about this? And they go, we love it or we hate it. And we then we then cater to the film crew in terms of their needs at that location to allow them to film successfully. You know, so whether or not they need a whole block of flats to be, you know, completely blacked out and no lights all night. You know, we we have to make that happen. Cars in a car park, we need these all gone. We have to make that happen. We need chairs on set. You know, we make that happen. So it's everything to facilitate all the other departments to be able to film successfully at a location. And then you've got obviously the other side of it where once you're finished, everything goes back and it's almost like you've never been there. And so as a follow on to that, for someone who wants to work in film and TV, what are the qualities that you think would make someone particularly good at locations relative to the rest of the industry? So they can go, if this description aligns to me then actually location should be something i try i think if you can see yourself being very good in hospitality and being incredibly hard working and good at problem solving then i think you've got a lot of good elements to start in the location uh, department i think that's probably what differs us from other departments is that you really have to be that core team that holds together a film crew in some ways i think a lot of other departments are on their own sort of trip to making the film and the location department has to be that one department that in some ways everyone can turn to tell them their problems and we can react to everything in some ways um and not hold grudges yeah right uh, and i think what's especially true about the hospitality is we are the most public facing department yeah yeah we're definite i mean if someone asks you to do something i mean for example you're filming on a on a main high street so if someone asks you to do something you know you need a car moved it's a period drama and there's a 2007 Vauxhall astra park right outside <laughs> it's make or break for the film and if and if you don't have good people skills and you can't speak to someone outside to get that car moved it ruins that shot Yep. That's time or and that's money. Is very expensive to fix in post. Exactly, 100%. 100%. I feel you have a particular grudge against the 2007 Voxel Astro yeah. from the set. No, <laughs> <laughs> no problems with Voxel Astros, guys. <laughs> and can you share a pivotal moment or project in your career that was a significant learning experience? Um, so, I've got to say, it, it was a TV series called Ragdoll. That I did. Those computers. <laughs> um, so Ragdoll was a series that um, actually Daniel Hughes got me on. Thank you, Daniel. Um, and it was, it was my first 
serious sort of contracted job that I got. This one was actually contracted. And uh, first serious contracted job I got, and I didn't start out a unit manager on this job. Um, oh, no, I did, actually. So it was funny. <laughs> yes, uh, it was me being too modest. That's what it was. Yeah, so it, it, I, I'll, I'll explain this, but then... Yeah, no, it, no, you do it. Um, Mark has only been in the industry at six months at this point, and usually it takes years to get ready for that role in unit manager that handles the base and the trucks and power. And it was just a mark of how we took to the industry like a duck to water that I wanted to give me opportunity. And Marcus, because he's a very humble guy, didn't want to take the title of unit manager. He wanted to take the title of assistant unit manager, even though there was no unit manager. (laughs) So everyone treated him as the unit manager and he did the work. So it was like a series of discussions between me and him to get him to accept the title and the pay when he was already doing the work. So. Did you not take unit manager pay initially? No, I couldn't give it to him because he wouldn't take the role. No, well, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was the first job as well. So I sort of, you know, I think this is something you've got to be so careful about in the industry is, is making sure you stand your ground and you say, look, this is my rate. But to be quite honest, at that time, it was the, it was the best rate I'd ever had. And I sort of thought, you know what? I, I don't want to be the unit manager in reality because I, don't, I didn't feel like I had the experience to be a good, a good unit manager. So therefore, I, I don't really want to take the pay because then I'm sort of expecting a production company to pay, to pay me for a set of skills that I didn't feel like I'd fully developed at that time. And in some ways, the great thing about the job was I came on board and there was a, 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 there was a location manager on the team called Damien, is it Damien Edwards? Damien yeah. Edwards, lovely guy actually. And he had unit managed for a few years previous to the project. And I thought, great. So I came on board and he was sort of like my mentor. Um, and at the start, it worked quite well, actually. And we sort of did did a, a few, maybe one location <laughs> together or something <laughs> like that. It was one location together. Unfortunately, he had to leave, which was quite sad. But um, he, he actually went back to Superho that Molly did. Oh, did he really? Okay, yeah. wow. I'm, I'm really interested because I feel like listeners are going to be like, hang on a second, how did you go in the industry for six months and then end up being kind of a pseudo unit manager. Yeah. Not a pseudo, what? he did it all. No, no, pseudo was in the term <laughs> yeah, so yeah. you hadn't accepted the role yeah. technically. Yeah, yeah. You, what, so what sort of, what, what year was this? What sort of things were happening in the industry? Oof, time and frames here. how did you come to be asked to do that? So one thing I would say is that as soon as you start working in the film industry, time completely disappears <laughs> there is, you no longer have an idea of what day it is what year you did something you just end up working bloody hard what for weekends a long time. are <laughs> exactly um but i'd probably say i'd probably say this was something like i think i started marshalling 2019 20. 2020 was then the year that i got my first proper big job um but luckily, I did Britannia as a marshal. I think I did, what, two months on that. Mm-hmm. I then... You came back periodically. You were just I came also back working. Periodically. I then, I think I did... Um, I did two weeks on Top Boy season two, which was great. Good learning experience. Um, and actually, that was the first time I'd driven a large van. Hmm. So that was my first <laughs> job driving a van. Um, and we shot all, all over London. And... Um, did that and then i think i came back onto britannia and then i ended up getting um 
a small BBC job as a location assistant. And that was my first location role. So a location assistant, you then are in charge of the marshals and you then are sort of the voice of locations on set in some ways. Anything that is above the amount of experience that you have, there's a location manager, but the location assistant is sort of like a, if you imagine a team manager in a store, mm. you manage the sort of, you manage the marshals and the workers, let's say, um, but you've all, there's a hierarchy still above you should anything larger come up. They um, tend to be assigned to a location per day, right? They don't tend to move around an awful lot or? Location assistants, I think, uh, basically go around with a whole shoot crew mm. on, on smaller jobs. Mm. And on larger jobs, they may help a location manager be like the location manager's um, right hand. sort of right-hand man, the person who runs the floor for them, things like that, really. Um, but it's very complex, but I mean, it changes a lot. Like every department, it changes a lot based on how big or small the job is. Um, you know, so I'm thinking, I then went on to do the Stephen Lawrence murder investigation with Steve Coogan for Channel 4. And was it Channel 4, ITV? One of, one of, those, one of those channels. And, uh, and went on to do that really, really lovely crew on that, actually. Um, but the same, I, I drove a van. I was a location assistant. And in that van, I had everything that I needed to service the, the film crew and the location with. So um, the first thing that comes into my mind are easy apps. So mm. for anyone that isn't in the film industry watching this, um, easy apps are what we call sort of gazebos, basically. And uh, and actually, and they're called easy ups because they're easy to put up. They are easy, but to not, put carry up. <laughs> not carry long distances. Not carry long distances. And they are. They're probably, what, are they 35 kilograms? Sadly, they're 25. Are they 25 kilograms? They feel heavier, don't they? They feel like, they feel they like feel 35 after 100. <laughs> they do really feel yeah. like 35 kilograms. Um, and there are competitions nowadays with people trying to carry two at the same time. Yep. Yeah. So There's lots happening. of young men who get strong enough to lift two easy ups who about six months later go, Daniel, my back hurts and I don't <laughs> know why. I, I did that with carrying chairs. I used I to really try and carry guess. five in each arm. Yeah. And the fact oh, wow. that was a bit challenging yeah seriously if you can carry more than eight folding chairs at one time you are a hero on set yeah yeah so no, I, 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 I did it once impressive. i was I, I was 21 when i started i was young full of energy <laughs> yeah. then wow. i was like you know what i want i don't want to die so i'm going to just carry <laughs> three and yeah. i'll just do that lots of times i think sometimes you've got to put yourself first yeah, yeah. once I, you've I actually, shown your dedication yeah, yeah, to yeah. it i mean the thing is that again for listeners trying to get in when you become more senior, like Danny and I have, you'll see young people do silly things like carry 10 chairs or mm. two easy ups at the same time. And you do think, wow, they're really working hard, but man, stop. Yeah, I know. So you, do, know. So you kind of, in a way, you admire it and also criticize it at the same time. In fact, mm. you've got a story about when you injured yourself on a hill in the rain. This was Ben Mangum. He told you, the location manager told you to go home. Oh, yeah, you've merged two stories. Oh, did you really? I didn't injure did myself on back? a hill. <laughs> <laughs> ten no, no, chairs I was, later, guys. I, ten chairs later. This was actually because I was helping out the art department. Uh, being a too dangerous helpful. prospect That's at any well. time. So I was moving stone plinths using, uh, you know, like the okay. trolleys, the sack trolleys or whatever they're called. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sack barrows. Yeah. Sack, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I put, I put one stone plinth down in front of me and then I got the other one onto a thing. And I was holding it there because of the weight of it. Mm -hmm. So then when it went down, obviously it just went down fully and trapped my finger between two of the stone plimps and there's no gap between oh the stone God, plimps. Okay. So it just smashed. Uh, and yeah, and then... 
basically very much injured my hand and nearly passed out because of the pain. From the pain? Oh, yeah. really? And so the location manager said to me, this is all I was just marshalling. The location manager said to me, you know, go run your hand under a cold tap. And But I was there and I was kind of like this by the sink. Uh, for, for listeners, I had my, I was sat on the floor with my arm up in the air in the sink mm-hmm. in, the, in this bathroom running the tap. And I was just kind of like nearly passed out. It was one of the few times on set where there was no medic just for my luck. Oh, no. And anyway, the location manager said, you know, you've hurt your hand, go home. Mm. And I said, no. (laughs) So I did the rest of the day with one hand. I basically just put one hand, like my hand across my chest, and then my good hand, I just did everything else I needed to do, carry stuff, help put up easy I mean, ups. People must have thought you were either having a heart palpitation <laughs> or you were very religious. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. One of two or things. I smashed my finger. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or that, so, or that. But anyway, I, I, I don't know. I think I think the location manager on that admired that I just kept going. But at the same time, he probably yeah. was thinking, mate, you don't need to be here. Yeah. I think it's the bad way of saying that's how you make it on a film set. Yeah. You know, if you're in pain and struggling and you still get through it, yeah. you made it, you know. And that actually brought me on to another point because you mentioned on that job you did the Cuban that they were a lovely crew. In all the years I've known you, I've never heard you say that there wasn't a lovely crew. And there's a kind of thing of, you know, if every relationship you're in is a bad relationship, what's the common denominator? You. You're probably the problem. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Just break it to your audience. In the same way, Marcus is, says every job he's ever done, he's like, that crew was lovely. And I think a huge part of why he says that is because he is someone who can stay, remain upbeat, remain smiling at 2 a.m. in the rain, in the wind. And so that's what he gets back from crew. So being positive and upbeat is actually an employable skill because mm-hmm. people will want to be around you as you know your career trajectory goes if you can keep that up. And also, you know, just from a people perspective, when, when you're working as a freelance basis, you get the next job because people like being around course, you. So it's both yeah, yeah. valuable on the, on the set and in terms of getting your next job. Yeah, 100%. Just from building those relationships. Yeah, very true. I mean, there have been some horrible people that I've witnessed on set. Yeah. And you have to bite your tongue, you know. He worked and, with me for years, guys. And, I mean, and, you know. and you walk away, you know, <laughs> swearing and cursing and going, I'm so pissed off about this day. You know, you yeah. go, you know, you do go home a lot of days and you go, I'm sure like the day you hurt your, you hurt your finger, you go home and you think, this isn't worth it. I don't actually think, I don't think I did think that. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know. You, you, I mean, you were 21. Yeah, <laughs> when you start <laughs> out. You still had dreams at that point. <laughs> yeah, when you start out, you're so enthusiastic. And yeah, I think yeah. I think definitely go into it like that, like mm. anyone else coming into the industry, whatever age you are. But at the same time, you do need to think about your longevity. Yeah. You do, yeah. So yeah. when you start out, you're like, you're especially if you are young or fit, like you carry everything, you work really hard, you do crazy hours, mm. but then you end up injuring yourself or you can't sustain it mm-hmm. your outside relationships fall apart or i mean you're not probably not gonna have financial problems because you, you earn a decent amount but you do, basically you can practically fall apart and then you burn out and then you drop out the industry a- yeah actors have an idea of uh one for them one for me they'll do a project for the money and then they'll do a project that fulfills them creatively mm. and i think that's a decent mindset for crew below the line to have because you're so focused on what's my next job. And so you're not thinking about what makes this fun, what makes me want to keep doing this. And it's, you know, you you will have, you might not have the fastest trajectory thinking about that, but you will have the longest trajectory. 
and you will outpace the people who charged ahead of you doing everything and neglecting everything else and then went, actually, this industry is not for me. I'd be interested, actually, Marcus. How would you describe you choose your jobs? I'm actually really interested as well. How I choose my jobs. Because this is the so, person I know who gets the most simultaneous offers. How I choose my jobs. So in all honesty, I only turn down jobs in two circumstances. If I'm already employed, I can't work two jobs at once, even though some people somehow do. But um, no comment, Your Honour. <laughs> no, I didn't mean to look <laughs> yeah, at no, you. No, mate, I'm there are I'm people teasing. that work more than two jobs at the same time somehow um in the industry um so turn them down if i'm currently employed and like i've sadly done the other day i had to turn down a job because i'm currently taking a month off mm. you know so actually i think the same thing about burning out i mean one of my i think there's we all still have things that we need to work on as, as people and the things that i need to work on as a character in the industry we work in is um is making sure I don't do everything myself, making sure I don't burn out. And and it's a really difficult thing because you're so you're sort of so used to a militant way, style of working in the film mm. industry. You just keep working, you just keep making sure everything's perfect. You get everything ready before everyone gets there, you know, and it doesn't matter. Like you've just got to smash it out. And I think the the longer you work in the industry, like you said, you sort of realize, you know, I can actually delegate that to somebody else you know i oh. can actually try and put my trust in someone else to get that job done as well as i can so i think i think one of the points as well is that people that want to make it in the industry you should look up to the people that are that are in 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 higher places you know your managers and, and predecessors and things that they do right try and just make sure you do do the best at everything you end up doing because ultimately that person then can trust and rely that you'll get the job done to to a similar level of perfection that you'd want to achieve yourself, you know. Um, I think that's right, but I, I don't want to bring it back to Tom's question of, because, you know, I've known you mm. when you've had three, say, three offers of jobs yeah, on yeah. And I know this because I've been one of the three. And so I'm <laughs> curious, okay, yeah, okay. Like, like a story for example. Yes, so yeah. I'm curious what your decision-making matrix is. I think... I think you've got to you've got to look at a few aspects. I think what is the job, right? Do you think you're gonna? Do you think what what are you gonna get out of the job, right? Do you think you're gonna enjoy the job? How long it lasts for, right? Because the reality is, sort of being self-employed, you the if someone calls me about a job, that's a job coming towards me. I do, I don't get that call every day, you know. So I, there aren't an endless amount of jobs that I that I get offered. So it's important for me that if there's a job that lasts a long time, I pick that over a shorter job in some ways. Um, ultimately, we've all got to we've all got to try and make make enough money to survive, really. Um, so it's yeah, what job it is, how long the job is, if it pays well, and ultimately it's it's those three things. And you've got to be selfish, and you have to think how does it fit in with my lifestyle? Hmm. You know. Curious because I think you've missed two really big elements that I think. Oh, go on. First is, where's it located? Well, yes. No, you're right. I've missed a f I've missed a few things. You're <laughs> right. Yes. And the second is, who's the team? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I would say don't work with people that you're not too keen on. Right. 
And secondly, don't. Unless, don't, unless it's a really short job. Unless it's a really short and you <laughs> yeah. and you've got enough. These all play to together. All these them. factors. Yeah. yeah. And um. And yeah, again, yeah, the, where where the jobs located? I mean, you hear a lot of stories about people taking jobs, and their commute is like two and a half hours in, two and a half hours back. Yeah. And I would say, you know, a lot of people that start out in the industry are prepared to do that, yeah. you know. And I think, okay, you know, sometimes if you hadn't done that drive, you wouldn't have got that job. It wouldn't have led you to your next job. But you've got to be so careful. I mean, the, the amount of people that get into accidents and have accidents mm. at work yeah. from doing the hours we do, the drives that, that sometimes we do, it's just crazy. I mean, I'm. It's I'm very common, especially in locations department, to do 14 hour days. Yeah. So yeah. usually contracted 11 or 12. <laughs> you yeah. probably work 14. You could do 16. You do tend to earn overtime. But regardless of that, you've got done a 16 hour day and then done two and a half hours commuting each side. Yeah. I it's crazy. Still yeah. don't know anyone who has worked more than six months full time who doesn't have a near miss story. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think everyone's got a near miss story or a story of a not near miss. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's actually, there was a campaign uh, when I was at film school called Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut and I'm not mm. sure where it's gone or what, what's happening with it, but basically the, the prominent idea was consider how tired you are for whether you can safely drive. And the problem is yeah. a lot of these locations are in the middle of nowhere. So... If it is, you have to drive there to get to the job. Yeah. So one of the changes, one of the positive changes, which I'm going to take a slightly controversial stance on, so warning listeners, is been the new agreement, which I'm on the whole very, very supportive of, uh, back to packed agreement on crew and on turnaround. And specifically, for those who don't know, turnaround is about the time you should have between your shifts. And so... When Mark started working with me, when I started the industry, it was 11 hours. Mm -hmm. And you could break turnaround. Productions could have you work less than 11 hours, which I know is surprising for a lot of new people. And then you they incur a fee. Mm. And it used to be that that fee was incurred from 11 hours. And under the new system, it's not. It's 11 hours if you're working the next day. If you have a day off and then you work, it's 24 hours plus 11 hours. If it's... If you are, have two days off, so you work Friday and then you have Saturday, Sunday off, then you work Monday, it's 48 hours plus 11 hours. So the way that plays out is someone finishes working for me at 11 p.m. on Friday. I can't have them start on Monday before 10 a.m. Without breaking. Without breaking turnaround. Yeah. yeah. Which is, as you can see, just... That is insane from a planning perspective. Mate, That that's why I say controversial... Mm. Because uh, I've been a supervisor and location manager, so I've done my crew workflows, and it's and you've got the produ producers saying I want less broken turnaround, and you're going and call might be eight a.m. on Monday, so you need to have some people in from six thirty-seven, mm. and you've got members of your team who are like, I'll do it, and you're like, I can't have you because I need to reduce my broken turnaround, and they're like, Oh, but I'll I'll have the whole weekend off. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. That's insane. Can you just um, what oh, I know? So, it's so that's one of the the yeah. ways it's changed is they've made the penalty longer, so it's now incentivizing people who schedule to schedule people with more time off. So that's yeah, and that's a it is a good thing. It yeah, is a good yeah, absolutely. Thing. Is. There's always basically a constant battle between those planning it and trying to keep it in budget and on time, 
with with the actual like not <laughs> making everyone a slave workforce, yeah. which is which yeah. is a global problem. Yeah, yeah, it's not uh, really true, but it's true. definitely a huge one in film. Mm. Um, Daniel, just for the benefit of listeners, can you explain very briefly who Bet Two and who Pact are and what these agreements are and how they impact crew? Sure, I wish I understood these better. So you know, to my understanding, audience, you can call in. Uh, please don't. We're here <laughs> not live. <laughs> Um, and tell me that I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about and I should learn what Google is. So just let put it out there, go for it. Uh, basically, BEC2 is the union for the workers, um, kind of cr- across virtually all departments, and PACT is the uh, union for production companies and producers. And so it's basically our two unions coming together and us going, please, sir, can I have another serving? And they're like, get back, children. <laughs> Um, it's basically the the two unions that have that negotiation. So the producers are always going to want to squeeze workers' rights because it allows them to finance their projects. And that isn't necessarily from an evil perspective. It could be, especially if you're in independent film where you've got one million pound budget, the, the, the better the rights are for, for staff, the harder it is for you to get a film off the ground because you don't have enough cash yeah. to do it. Yeah. So there's always that that pressure pushing from that direction and in Beck 2 is protecting those rights. So if you don't have both, you don't end up with a nice or relatively nice compromise in the yeah. middle. You either have a complete slave workforce or people with so many rights that you can't actually finance a film. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't understand the issue well enough to say it's true. My producer friends and my head of production friends were telling me when the agreement was being negotiated, a lot of people should be careful because the film industry in the UK has absolutely boomed over the last few years but it's boomed primarily from American money. And they're like, if you make it too expensive, they will pull out. And yeah. a lot of people did not get a lot of work in 2023. And a lot of people have not gotten a lot of work yet in 24. And I have no idea if that is why, because producers would say that regardless of how true it is, because it's in their interests to make us go, we should not ask for too much in case we're making ourselves less attractive to international production companies. But, the agreement has gone through. Filming has lessened. I, I, I can't prove causality at all. There is a correlation. I mean, what's interesting, and we're going way off on a tangent, so we'll bring it back in a minute to, um, to Marcus, is for a long time, this American money has been coming in, all these big Disney, Netflix productions, etc., and they've inflated costs because they were competing for talent, resources, locations, etc. So they've inflated costs above what it used to sit at comfortably for independent productions. Yeah. So then when we had these US strikes where all the US productions weren't shooting, theoretically, as long as you didn't have any American actors or SAG actors, you could shoot UK projects. Mm-hmm. But it was really quiet for multiple reasons. But but the, it, it was really noted how the UK industry had shrunk so much, like the homegrown industry, your know, BBC shows, that mm-hmm. sort of thing, because all the costs had inflated so much, they couldn't afford to put out so many productions. And I might be speaking total rubbish as well. No, I, but that's the general, my I, general understanding. Yeah, I think you're right on money because crew rates have absolutely exploded. Like I remember mm. one time when Beck 2, because Beck 2 published a rate card for what we should go for. There was one time I was an assistant location manager at the time and the rate card increase was £250 a week. What's the that's, current, that's pretty what's good. the current rate for good. a Marshall? The base rate? Or uh, a, minimum for a TV show drama. Yeah. You yeah. you see 150s, it's 130 is the standard. And there's a new thing in the agreement, which is on shoot days, you get 
ten percent more than that. So it will be one hundred and forty-three on shoot days. I think I'm seeing a lot of hundred and forties around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I believe that. I mean, I've it's ninety back in my day. <laughs> fifty. I've had fifty <laughs> back in other people's days. I used to work for free. <laughs> <laughs> not not I, even joking. I yeah. paid them. <laughs> I mean, I'm even hearing production companies that have said, you know, we can't afford other departments now because their mm. rates have gone up so high that they just can't make another production in the UK anymore, you know. But then saying that, we've obviously just had the had the, had the strikes and actually there have been some productions that have made the most of it and have been able to get crew for, you know, for a smaller rate than they're used to because of yeah. it being so quiet. But, you know, that's, let's see what happens, really, I think. We're, full, we're fully uh, going down the economics. We are, uh, yeah, we sorry, are. Sorry, this we is are. Uh, economics framed yeah, <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Let's, let's change it. How do you see technology changing the way the locations department operates? I think we're quite a lucky department in some ways. I, I think the only side of our department that would suffer is, is scouting. So for anyone that doesn't, doesn't know what scouting is, scouting is where, you, as a location scout, you get a brief on where they'd like certain scenes of the, of the film or or series to be set and you go out and find those locations where you film right based on what the director would want to see what's been written in a, in a screenplay or you know and so that sort of idea of driving around looking for something that matches the brief um you know through the rise of technologies a lot of those things are slowly being done more and more just by people taking images online and even the possibility of software is just you know, going off street view and being able to just find something that matches a description based on, you know, a computer algorithm that finds that sort of architecture based at that time or, or whatever. On the job I'm on now, um, it's Letitia Wright's directorial debut. She really wants interesting stairwell in a council estate. Mm. I asked ChatGBT, he gave me a list. Really? Including a breakdown the different architectural styles, what made them interesting, all the things just... Wow. But you still... I still had to... You still need someone to facilitate and run that. It just means maybe they can do multiple you jobs do, at once. You do. Yeah, I think that's... Because what, they can. They basically just be running the algorithms on five yeah, jobs at the same time because they don't yeah, have to spend yeah. so much time out and about. Yeah. I think and what it, it means... And it devalues experienced industry knowledge. Yeah, you just well, need someone who does. knows how to use those systems. It does. I think... Anyone who wants to join locations, go into scouting. Spend a, <laughs> spend a week trying to find a location, but just pop it in chat GBT. Basically, <laughs> basically, right? um, but yeah, I think if that's there's any the productions listening, we that's not how it works. That's not at how all. it works. No, it works. locations need months to scout. Months. <laughs> no. um, I think that's the only side of of our of our department that probably would suffer from it in some ways. I'm interested because you and I have discussed how if auto-generated extras becomes thing in thing how it would impact locations. So I'm curious that you don't think that that's a problem. Or you just don't remember that conversation. I ne Do you know what? I never really... He doesn't I never thought about it that much. But I think the reality is, is that, you know, one, it's a hard aspect of our life because if you have a lot of essays, it's a lot of work, right? If you imagine 300 people, it's sort of like a an event. It's a big event, isn't it? You know, and you've got to make sure... All of those people have a place to sit, a place to go to the toilet. They get fed and they, they know where they're going. And at they all don't time. destroy the location that they're in. Well, yeah. 
and normally they have that you know they have to get changed somewhere so that's a lot of space required to sort of facilitate that um if there were to be fewer essays i sort of think that i mean ultimately there'd be less work for marshals the more people on set the more people you need to help you know that's true guide those people around so yeah there'd be less less marshal numbers for things like that if they were to be reduced but i think for us i mean i don't know my perspective is i'm a unit manager the more i can stay away from large crowds, <laughs> better because i think there's so much that you have to do to do with them you know but um but yeah i mean potentially i it, don't it see it as a and you definitely have more experience locations than i ever did but i don't see it as being a huge issue in the sense of it can if it brings down cost and time mm. then you know you technically could get more productions on the go because you're not spending as much money on that sort of stuff so surely then there might be more employment for others elsewhere because there's more cost effective productions so it's kind of a bit you you're not a producer as well. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> a producer. <laughs> Sorry, I do tend to look, and this is always the weird thing, because I, I trained at the NFTS as a producer. Whenever I was working then in, in below... The brag. <laughs> exactly. when, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but whenever I work below the line, so there's, there's above the line and below the line, when I would work below the line, which is the crew, uh, my head always thinks more like a producer. Mm-hmm. So whenever it was like, oh, yeah, so you know you can actually have better turnaround now and more sleep, I'd be like, oh, that sounds pricey. (laughs) (laughs) I never think, great, I'm going to earn more money. I always think, oh, that's expensive. That that doesn't sound like a good idea at all. Yeah, and it's because you're you're considering the macro rather than the micro. Yeah. Which I think is a good producer skill. Um, Mm. Going Drilling down on that, you're with... Basically, I'm I'm putting forward that if computers can auto-generate extras, so you, you know, walk around the back of the screen, whatever, it will mean that we will not need such large crowd costume, crowd makeup spaces, which locations find and source the mirrors and set mm-hmm. up and all, all the changing spaces, and we hire out those conference halls and those church halls. And but doesn't that mean you can spend more time focused on finding really good locations? Potentially, yeah. And and also there might be locations that you can now service because you don't need a massive hall next to it, or don't need a unit base so close on that sort of thing. I that's think a, that's it, a great it takes perspective. Away a pain in in some ways, but, it, I, but, but I yeah. But basically, the reason I say it changed the department is it takes away a pain, and you get money and you get staff to take away pain. Yeah, yeah of course. So you're right; it will make the production more efficient, but it's basically reduces how big the locations team needs to be per job, especially Mark has nailed it with the dailies. Those are how new people get in. Because you're not going to hire a marshal to use ChatGBT to use scouting. You'll hire a location manager. Or just have AI be marshalling it at one point anyway. Well, <laughs> how far away do we think this is going to be? Because we have to bear in mind Five years. how creative directors and DOPs are. And many times, you know, they always want to push the boundary when it comes to crowd numbers already, just for the sake of being as realistic as possible, right? But generally, I've always heard, uh, you know, uh, directors going, yeah, we want as many crowd as we can get here. You know, we want to fill the space. This kind of debate about, you know, like, you whether you shoot your whole film in front of a green screen or blue screen, Mm. or you shoot it on a location, it's a similar thing. It's like, if you're creating a massive crowd protest mm. scene but you're going to digitally create all the protesters 
So therefore, you've just got a big empty space that's been dressed, but your two leads in the middle of it and no crowd. Well, how are you going to emulate that feeling? I mean, obviously, you'd probably get a few to be nearby, but you're not going to get that energy. So it's then there's yeah. the whole debate about shooting a film in front of a blue Which, screen or shooting it where it's you know it's tactile. And, and you're absolutely right. And then that f- further reduces the value of the location. Mm. Or rather, what it does is it makes the... Like at the moment, if you're shooting in front of the green screen, you still need the extras. You just need the extras in front of the green screen. So you might as well be in front of a location. Whereas if you can take away that element, then you can take away the location element and the extra element. You don't you don't need to have the extras in front of a green screen. All right. This guy knows more than me. You can have one or two walk past like the principles, but like it like you know, Bohemian Rhapsody, you've got massive crowd scenes at a stadium. They were all digital. Interesting. Yeah. See, I should not talk before I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, it's an interesting discussion. No, I, I, I find it interesting as well is that you, you're focusing on sort of the negative impacts of technology on the job, but then there's, I mean, this is probably just going to sound silly now, <laughs> think about it with more detail, but there's also things like, you know, green uh, generators, silent generators. Ooh, this is exciting. All the development of technology in that sense. Because I did a training at Location 1 recently. Oh, yeah. Electrical safety training which has clearly paid off, as you can see from how we've plugged all these cables in. Um, and they think that fuel jennies are going to disappear in the next few years completely. Especially in London. So it will, the unit-based jennies will be completely electric jennies, and rather than getting them refueled, they will come and get recharged. Interesting. What do you think? I mean, it's a, it's a big cost thing. I, think, I, th- I mean, look, I always think... Um, you've got to look at the general electric consumer market first, right? And you've got to, as in you've got to see, right, where's the current car market going in terms of electric cars and how far we've come to adopt electric technology. It's still massively expensive. And a lot of people are still really struggling to adapt to it, right? The infrastructure just isn't there yet. I think to say five years is quite, quite optimistic. I, I I probably think it's going to be at least 10 years until it becomes a common thing, I would say. I think I think the, the thing with diesel generators currently is that, I mean, it's a bit horrible to talk about diesel generators because they're extremely bad. But I mean, a lot of companies are getting a lot better with, you know, um, em- emission regulations, having them meet um, stage five emission regulations, which are incredibly better than like stage four emission regulations. So there's an interesting thing about stage five journeys that I learned. Yeah. (laughs) So we're boring our (laughs) listeners about emission regulations. It's not an emission regulation. It's a, the generator won't let you run it underloaded. Underloaded, yeah. yeah. So at Glastonbury Festival, I'm going to get the ratio wrong, but basically... But because all their lighting is LED and low energy efficient and so on, mm. their generators need to put out a kilowatts, kilowatts, kilowatt, something just mm-hmm. absolutely insane, just heating an empty field because the generator wouldn't turn on if you didn't draw that much power from it. And so is that what they had to do? Yeah. Is that the inside knowledge? Yeah. Wow. I mean, we need to be charging for this like, podcast like, what, for what, information like that. <laughs> this what, is a locations what, training podcast. Has that even got in the news yet? No, it's because the guy who did the course wrote the uh, manuals on electrical wow, safety. Okay, anyway, let, um, in your opinion, what is the biggest challenge facing 
the film industry? Well, at the moment, it seems like it's work. There's not enough work <laughs> around for everyone, really. Um, biggest challenge facing the film industry. Um, I'm curious what your opinion is as well. Do you know what? I probably would say it's... Um, obviously, at the moment, there is a labour problem. Um, but I'd probably say it's it's waste, to be quite honest. Interesting. Tell I me I think more. if I thought about it as a whole... I mean, we produce so much waste collectively. And I have found that a lot of jobs just don't have hands-on sustainable as to sustainability departments, which I really think there should be, you know. Um, and I think for us, many, many times we the burden of sustainability gets thrown on us, right? And so it's a massive budget thing. And it's also a lot of work that mm. unfortunately you can't, and people do this all the time. They try and throw loads and loads of stuff at the location department. You sort this out, you sort this out. But you end up running out of time. And, and you can't give it enough time that it actually needs. And that's the problem with sustainability. It takes a lot of time to work out the best processes to be green. And we've tried and our best. And then a lot of crews know. aren't interested, unless it's super easy for 100%, them. 100%. Because yeah. they've got so much going on. For sure. And if you're a one-man band, like you just can't You can't. I've only seen else. proper sustainability departments on Disney jobs. It's, it's the only time because yeah, they've got so much yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. crew and money. Exactly. Um, and so I think that probably, that needs to start changing. Um, and I think you're right with the whole advent of greener technologies. I mean, what I would say is that for them to say in five years in terms of base generators and things like that, I think no doubt they'll be trialing that. I think at the moment, there was, w there was one point where you'd park 15 trucks in London and you'd have five generators running all day and all night. Now, those days are over, which is absolutely great. And now we're using Volt stacks and we're using Instagrids and we're using all these different green energy battery storage units, um, which, I mean, we've used together and, and I think all film crews are now using and they're, and they're great. They're, they're fantastic. But I think the, the more power you need to produce, the harder it becomes and the more expensive it becomes. You know, And for anyone that doesn't know, a unit base is can be anything from sort of I don't know two trailers to like thirty five trailers, and they're the they're huge sort of you know thirty to forty foot big white trailers. They're either Arctic trucks that have been converted into office space spaces or costume and makeup facilities, or they're gorgeous artist trailers for artists to sit in with sofas and kitchens and all kinds of nice things. But they use a lot of power in in the winter, you know. I can remember reading an interview about one of the ca minor cast on uh, Mission Impossible 2. And she was like, Tom was amazing. Like, he made sure that we all had the same trailers that he did. And I remember that day, and I was super low down on the call sheet, and he, s he saw that my trailer wasn't like his. And he was like, we're going to get this fixed right away. And the next day I had one, and I'm like, that's great for you. Oh, I know really? a unit manager <laughs> who was just like... <laughs> I'm sorry, you've ordered how many 50-foot artist trailers? I know, like I know, I can imagine, I can imagine. I mean, I have seen the industry go way more sustainable, though. When I started in the industry way, oh, has, way yeah. back, like eight years ago, you you just had whole containers full of water bottles. Mm. And that's how people <laughs> got water. And as as you would know, it's like you take a few sips, you put it down, you start doing your sound operating yes, or whatever it is, yeah, and then you go, yeah. is that my bottle? I can't remember, I don't know, I'll grab another one. Yeah. And so... A lot of what I did when I started out marshalling was just going around sets collecting water bottles mm. that were mostly full. 
and I'd pour them away and then I'd throw them in the black bin bag because we didn't have recycling facilities. Yeah. And then within two, maybe three years, we were suddenly using water pumps and everyone brought their own bottles in. Mm. So I I, th- I wow. do think yeah, okay, that's, that that's quite the changes but can I happen think, really fast. I think fast. that's in, in, you know, monetary value, that's quite a small change in terms of how significant it is price-wise. That's when true. You, when it, you compare, it's in the favour of production to you know, like, provide less water bottles. I mean, Daniel will know, like a, a, a you know, a seven kilowatt Honda generator costs £3,700. If you were to get the equivalent in a battery storage unit, you're looking at maybe, you know, £15,000. Mm. You know, That's so a buy rate or high rate? As a, as a buy rate. As a buy, as a buy rate. rate. But when you consider high that... High rate's 80 quid compared to 550 quid. 550 yeah. is electric. A f- yeah, a week. Wow. And so when you when you consider swapping out generators, you're talking the difference of, you know, £270 for, let's say, like a, a 40 kilowatt generator to £1,000 for a battery storage unit. You know, and if you get that swapped out every so day... So basically the economics needs to make it make sense. I think, I think the more people start using it and the more the technology develops, the cheaper it's going to become, which I, I, you know, I think and five years... Yeah. It is also being driven by productions who are like, we are going to put money behind this because it matters. And film boroughs, particularly in London, who are like, you're not allowed diesel jennies anymore because residents yeah. don't like the fumes. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. I think we're constantly going to adapt. So I want to drill down on what do you think, because I've got a stance on what the biggest challenge in the industry is. What do you think of it? Well, my lovely co-host, Daniel, didn't ask me to prepare for this. So, <laughs> yeah, but, but as a producer, as a, an NFTS graduate. <laughs> biggest challenge the industry is facing. I think that US productions are killing independent productions. That's a good answer. Because mm. they raise crew rates so independents can't compete. But that's I don't know whether that's just me taking a really personal stance because I want to make features that are going to be relatively low budget to a Disney film. <laughs> so, otherwise, I mean, yeah, too much crew. COVID saw a massive boom in, in requirements for crew. Mm. So you've got really less than optimal crews Mm-mm. and yeah. very and, ill-disciplined and crews. Yeah, and crews that could have been great. It wasn't that the people themselves were bad. No, no, people weren't inherently bad. It was basically there was so much work going around and so few people to do the work that pe- any old person could just suddenly be thrust into a position that they didn't know how to do. Mm. And if they, even if it was a junior position, they didn't have the proper supervision. And some of them were then getting promoted up at crazy rates so that they were totally, you know... And, but, I mean, in a way, it's swung back because it's there's now so <laughs> little work. Yeah. That a good number of people, even some of the good ones, sadly, will have moved on to other industries, uh, and then we'll we'll see basically once it becomes hopefully becomes more regular work. I'm just realising I was quite selfish in answering that question, talking about just waste and sustainability. Oh, no, <laughs> waste and sustainability is massive. I was thinking about our department, not the not the whole industry as a whole, yeah. but it's quite um, it's quite sad when you think about it like that, isn't it? Really, Tom? Yes. Gosh. Awfully sad it podcast. Is. What's the greatest I, thing I, about? No, no, I, I want to give my answer because I'm give curious. Your answer, I think YouTube and TikTok. I think we now have access to such interesting content that can be produced for a hundredth, a thousandth of the cost of what it costs to make a film TV program. 
So, for example, the biggest podcast in the world is the Joe Rogan pro- podcast. Mm. He does a two-hour podcast every day. How long does it take him and how much money does it take to make that podcast compared to Red Notice, which was a film on mm. uh, Netflix that cost over $200 million. So, like, audiences now, it's become incredibly common for people to watch something while they're on another screen. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be a trend where it's like, you know what, I'd, instead of going to the cinema, I'll watch a Mr. Beast video. And it's, I don't think the industry can compete with how much cheaper and how more accessible it is. So there's millions of YouTube creators, mm. for example. And I, I think I, I think part of what is going to really hinder cinemas is that not just, oh, I can watch this on Netflix, it's the, oh, I can watch that on YouTube. Is that your biggest worry? Uh, I think. Shall I leave I think now, just so this podcast doesn't ruin the film industry? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I, I mean, your first of all, I don't know whether this is necessarily relevant to the podcast, but it's, it's a, it's a very pessimistic view of humanity. I, so I'm first of all gonna say my biases, which is I'm a cinephile, mm-hmm. so I will always value a movie over a YouTube video, always. So it's hard for me to imagine there are others that don't but I know they do exist. <laughs> I think that children today, and again, it's a sweeping statement, are used to quick content. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole general chat about whether attention spans are getting worse with the general idea that they are. And so it'd be interesting when those individuals are in their 20s and then their 30s and then their 40s, that if, that if the cinema going or the movie watching audiences yes. die off. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think... You'll always have some. So, like, when we're in our 60s, we'll probably still watch films. But it would just be interesting how that then the economics around it changes. Mm. The, the, the the rise of subscription services is helping a lot because you can sell your films and have a back catalogue and people still want to watch old things or tune into things. And you can, at the moment, you're right, you selling your films is becoming a lot harder because it's a lot harder to do that. I think there's an interesting problem in the future about getting actors, cause, like new actors into the industry because you can just AI generate mm. existing famous people. So that's another big one. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. Cool. I, I think actors should strike just because that's quite a big thing, isn't it? <laughs> they I, think they, I think they did. AI. <laughs> no, it's huge. I don't know. I don't think TikTok and that's going to kill. Uh, by the way, I don't think it's going to kill. I think it's the biggest challenge. I think, like, in the 50s and 60s, you used to get families that sat round a table all listening to the radio because that was the most interesting thing. Whereas now, you can go and see a video that's got money behind it on any topic that you personally want. So it's so able to be niched down in a way that a film needs to appeal to a broader audience. I think maybe, Tom, I feel like your point was trying to separate the two more, saying people make more of a thing to watch a film. It's more of a celebration. Uh, With the radio, you can listen to the radio for hours because it's always following on, but a TikTok is such a short clip, packaged so shortly, Mm. it's not really... I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what? okay, so the thing you're arguing is what's the is uh, is the eyeballs theory right the the sense of that 
all content at the end of the day, there's limited time and limited number of eyeballs. Mm. Yes. Those are two finite things. And yes, the population keeps growing, but they're relatively finite. Yes. So films are competing with television shows tele- and films and television shows are competing with radio and they're competing with podcasts and they're competing with YouTube videos and they're competing with TikTok. Like filmmaking framed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they're competing with video games. That's a big one. So yeah, Fortnite, Fortnite, for example, is massive and it's incorporating music concerts and various other m- mediums into Fortnite. And it's because a lot of young people are on Fortnite. So Fortnite is like movies are competing with Fortnite. They're not competing with other movies and other TV shows mm. because you could yeah. only you could spend your evening spending two hours playing Fortnite or spending two hours watching a film. So it's a general problem mm. across industries. I think, in terms of, and of, you know, we are way nowhere near qualified to talk about the economics of the industry. But I think if there are subscription based, stop me. <laughs> if there are subscription based <laughs> services that are that are appealing to people who want short form content and long form content, and they are subscri- subscription based. As long as people are still watching those content and they're still subscribing, there's an economic reason to be generating that content. Mm-hmm. If someone like Netflix has got short-form content and long-form content and the viewership for long-form content drops off over time, then yes, they probably wouldn't invest in long-form content because it doesn't maintain subscriptions. But then you're having a whole argument about whether the subscription models is going to be the model that goes forward across decades. and whether, yeah. So it's, it's a huge <laughs> economic yeah. discussion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's why I say I think it's the biggest challenge because it's opening a whole new world of competition that they haven't had to reckon with in decades past. But YouTube's been around since 2006 and we're still making content. Yeah, 2006. So it's 18 years. It's like that's... And it's the kind of thing where it's like the bit. one of the big problems the BBC's got, for example, is people that have the licence fee are disproportionately elderly. Yes, you do have a license fee. No. Do you have a license fee? I actually use my mum's. Okay, but she if you ha- live in the same property, I think yeah, yeah. If you live in the same property, yeah, yeah you yeah, need yeah, one yeah. license. Yeah. You don't have. So you don't watch BBC at all. I don't watch BBC at all. Hmm. And so I think the biggest problem they've got from a license fee perspective is that it skews elderly, and as they die. You know, it says in my tenancy contract for my house that I have to pay for a license, right? Oh, really? I don't know. I don't know whether it's in yours. <laughs> it's almost certainly not. <laughs> He's about to get a knock on the door one, <laughs> one day soon. Yeah, we might cut this segment out. No, fine. I. Yeah, right. a lot of young people don't watch BBC anymore, really. But I, I do. So I, you know. No. I, I, by the way, I, obviously, I think movies will continue. I just think there are going to be hundreds of millions of hours every year that would have been spent on TV and film that are going to get sucked into video games, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, uh, YouTube. Yeah, but it's just weird because, like, I spent a lot of time on social media. I also watched 65 films last year. Yeah, my case is that you'd have watched more. And uh, I'd No, l- for sure. But, like, if, if, if a million people watch 65 films a year, you've still got... A like or more mm-hmm. like it's i don't know it's not i don't feel like it's mutually exclusive there is an argument for how many how much time and, and how many people can watch something or do something but then but then you're having the same argument about sports like maybe if i watch less films i'd watch more football but i don't watch any football so it's therefore <laughs> football going down because i watch films and play video games instead yeah here's the thing 
a Mr. Beast video, pretty much every video he releases gets more views than the Super Bowl. It's good. <laughs> Sorry, Americans, but the Super Bowl is really boring. <laughs> it's, it's one of the, or, or like the Royal Wedding, or like a YouTube channel is getting more views than the most watched events in history. Mm, sure, but also, like, how many people watch the Super Bowl a hundred times? I mean, if it was more interesting, maybe we would. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, YouTube video view counts aren't individual. They're not IP-based, so they tend to be however many times the, you've clicked. But you can, it. on the analytics, see how many of them are unique. Cool. So, so what's his re- ratio of... It, his unique? unique is still bigger than the Super Bowl. Right. And it doesn't even... The eyeballs argument, it doesn't even matter if the same person watched it. It's that person not watching other stuff. But anyway, I'm I'm sorry. That was me. Also, Mr. Beast. We're going to yeah. s- see in the next 20 years if waste. Uh, oh, so we'll store this on our archive <laughs> and we'll challenge Daniel for it in 20 <laughs> years. <it>. But <laughs> So turns out YouTube, no, everyone stopped watching after the 2024. <laughs> um, okay. If you could go back Oof. to yourself, your first day. Yeah. The day before you hmm. go and work on a movie set for the first time and you could give yourself some advice, you can have a 10-minute conversation, what would you say? To well, it's, it's very subjective. Yeah. I would say, don't worry about a thing. Because I probably didn't sleep that whole night before my <laughs> first day, panicking, what's it going to be like? And I don't think I did, to be quite honest. I think I was so nervous, like any, like a lot of people will be on, the, on their first day on a new on a new job. Um, I'd probably say, look, just don't worry, just do your best, see what it's like. If you enjoy it, stick with it. You know, um, I don't know what, what I, w- I would say as well is that unless you do really badly, mm. as in like potentially risk killing someone, and even in this industry, it's quite forgiving. Yeah, yeah. Provided you own the fuck ups. Yeah, yeah. So if you're if you're good, if you, people get along with you and you've worked hard, but then you did a terrible job, mm. they'll be like, oh, "You and you, like, mate, we've all been there." And because then, but also, even if you fall out with the person hired you, you've got you can get other shots. Yeah. I feel, in locations. I'm not sure about other, mm. maybe camera or something different. I don't know. We'll we'll find out in a future podcast episode. Yeah. yeah. But I, th- I do feel like locations is quite forgiving so that, you know, if you weren't that great on your first day, you can be better on your second People month. Would give you a you know, you, chance. Yeah, you, you yeah. do get other chances. Yeah. It, it depends, you know, obviously where you're based in the country. I must admit, we had, a, we had a funny thing on a film set a few weeks ago and uh, one of the marshals um, was spoken to by, by a work colleague to say that, you know, it's been noted that someone has said, look, look, you know that that marshal's got to pull their weight a bit more and, and work harder, and um, and so they were told about this. And the following day, the Sparks were setting up some lights on a on a on a street. And sadly, one of the things that falls down to locations was um, the Sparks raided us and said, "Look, guys, there's a load of poo here on the street, mm. <laughs> and we want to set up our lights. You know, is there something you can do with it? Otherwise, we're not setting up the lights. You know, and unfortunately, it's one of those things where." A lot, of, a lot of other departments will uh, can happily refuse to do things if they're not their way. And in some ways, 
you know, we're trying to service the location and if a creative department wants to put something there and there's something blocking it, we've got to move it. So anyway, and um, so it was said on our radio channel, look, there's this poo, is, is anyone up for moving it? The marshal who got spoken to previously about not working hard enough put his hand up and ran over and decided he'd do the whole thing himself. Did it all perfectly and was so dedicated to it. You know, so... yeah. I mean, he sort respect. of listened to the advice. I mean, look, you know, and I'm enough years in that himself. I would be like not paid enough. Well, I know. I'd still do it. I wouldn't. That's a producer. Never, doesn't, he doesn't get his hand dirty with a common <laughs> folk like us, man. <laughs> oh, I would be covered head to toe in mud. I'm not going to ruin it. The first time I met Clem, yeah, it was on a big feature film. Oh yeah, and they were like, uh, called the Marshalls together, and he was like, "So, Honeywagon over there, um, or oh, sorry, mobile toilet." has flooded and there's shit all over the floor. If any of you are willing to clean it up, great. I completely understand if you all say no. And I was like, I'll do it. Because I was like, Mm-mm. you stand out by doing what other people are not willing to do. Because if you were doing what everyone's willing to do, that's great, but you're just, you are staying with the herd. It's yes. by yeah. arriving earlier, lifting more, taking on unpleasant tasks, you know, keeping a smile. Mm. I, I say it every time, but smiling at 2am in the rain, was it, God love you, people. Sorry. Who can do it. Was it dog or human excrement? It was human excrement. <laughs> it was dog in my case. Okay, if but it was yeah. dog excrement, I probably would. If human excrement's human... a little bit harder to do. I right, have I we I, we. Well, I can't remember the job now, but we were filming at St Paul's, and there was human excrement on the steps. Really. And I, I definitely, uh, you know, allowed uh, a marshal <laughs> to, to, you know, really True shine. producer. I think you had something quite important to do. I gave someone the opportunity to impress me. (laughs) 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 I was like, well, I could volunteer to do that, or I could let someone else have the opportunity to really show how good I'm established enough in my career that I don't need their help anymore. That's quite a good one, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, Marcus, what qualities, if you had to name three qualities, do you think are essential for success in the film industry? And qualities. It's definitely not doing the homework ahead of time because he didn't look at the questions. So I would say work ethic. Yep. I d- uh, it's quite difficult to put these in order, right? I'd say they're probably all quite yeah. equal. Work ethics, number one. I'd probably say, um, I'd probably say a personality. Number two, so that's so that I mean that covers a, a quite a broad range of things, right? Um, and and I also think like motor, not motivation, but sort of stamina, right? How long you can last and still stay? So maybe emotional stamina, probably emotional stamina, something like that, yeah, right? And that also links to personality you know, and, and work ethic, right? But how long can you put up with people for? And yep. how long can you maintain positivity for, right? Yeah. Because no one wants to work with someone that's sad, right? You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. doesn't mean you can't have emotion, right? We're all sad yeah. on the best of days, right? But... I think it's the toxicity, it's, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it, it's 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 trying to... It's having to put up with everything and stay level-headed for 16 hours a day every day for a week which is quite difficult you know um so i'd probably say if you've got those three things 
I think you're sorted. You probably work pretty much any department because then you're just learning technical well, exactly. skills. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've got the base things that to get it. get it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, would you guys change change any of those? Do you think? Nope. And interestingly, you might not know whether you have those until you've done it. Yeah. And, well, and I don't think you're I, never going to really I know. I think I would put emotional regulation at the top. Yeah. Okay. And I think it's something that I wish I was had been better at earlier in the industry. Really? Okay. Because, and this is a strange place for it to come from, but it's relatively well known that we experience negative things worse as people than positive things. So if you lose five pounds, you're more upset about that than how happy you are at finding 20 pounds. And so when you upset someone, wrong someone, make a mistake, people are, on the whole, feel that more intensely than they do when you do a similar or slightly better win. Mm-hmm. And so a moment of exhaustion or impatience or like, oh, for fuck's sake, mate, can undo so much of praise, mentoring, or relations with between departments. And so work ethic is how you build positive points. Being able to regulate yourself emotionally and keep smiling and keep being patient and you know, you're exhausted and someone snaps at you and goes like you know, for fuck's sake, cl- turn your radio down. And you're like, you just walked into a room. You so they've just responded because of something going on. Just you not going do you want to talk? Don't talk to me like that. Being able to go like, sure thing. And then they'll go, yep, you're right. And calm down. You, so I think being able to deal with those is the biggest. Because I say work ethic is how you build points. Emotion regulation is how you keep them. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? I, I'm thinking about it. I, was like, I don't know if I've ever had that feeling about anyone on set where I've been like, oh my God. You, mm-hmm. I like... I've I've definitely worked with people that I'm like, this person's useless. But my attitude has always been, I'm going to assume everyone here is doing their best and trying to make something awesome. But there we go. I think not everyone thinks oh, yeah, mate. And as it's, positively it's, as you do. No. You know what I'm I mean? No, that's, it's that's just interesting problem, you say that because right? I'm like, I mean, my regrets across my career was uh, taking jobs that I wish I hadn't taken mm. because they ended up being absolute nightmares. I know one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's two massive ones in my life, but, which I'll talk about off podcast if you're interested. But I don't know if I've ever on set ever like snapped or mm. done anything. That's because, and I've known you a long time, you're very good at, to put it in Top Gun terms, you're Iceman, mate. That you're good at keeping it below the surface in control. I'm Goose. But, but yeah. Basically, I think Marcus has summed it up. Those are the three things. But I think, look, we all have our accidents. We all get yeah. too tired sometimes. And oh, we yeah. all, you know, we all do things, say things, act in certain ways that we never really uh, mean to. But, yeah. you know, we're just... I tired. am knackered now. Yeah. And I had to go... Before we, before we started the podcast, I had to print off some questions. And I couldn't get the printer working. <laughs> I had to just kind of meditate. As <laughs> I waited, graduate. As I waited for the printer just to... Just had to regulate that emotion, you know, because I was like, Very I'm so good. overtired. 
Let's just want to get started on the podcast and the printer's not working. I just have to... Daily patience practice, mm. right? Mate, meditating. Keep, keeping it zen. Yeah. Phenomenal. I can't recommend it enough. I'm going to wrap this up. All right. So Let me... let's end with asking oh. Marcus this question. Well, no, let's do the rapid fire. No, we haven't got time. We were on an hour and 16 minutes. You decided to talk about the state of the industry and the future <laughs> economics of the film business. He says he keeps calm, but here he is yelling at me. <laughs> Guys, I think we're going to have to do an episode too. We will. That's yeah, what it feels two like. Podcasts. <laughs> so my final question is going to be, Marcus, what's next for you? Uh, any exciting projects in the pipeline? We know this. He said it right at the start. Nothing. <laughs> He's taking a holiday. Yeah, God, but but, what's so your, sad, but what are your plans? Nothing. You don't have to have a job. Um, what, what's next plans. for you plan-wise? Look, I think... I think, you know, we've spoken about the importance of time off. So I've got this time off, like I mentioned before. And plan wise, I mean, many people say, look, you don't want to be a Unimagine forever, do you? You know, because mm. we're sort of, you're an extension of the location team, but you're there right at the start of the day, right at the end of the day, and then dealing with a lot of stress and pressures involved with vehicle movements, everything else like that. A location manager can leave their location, but you're always then moving the unit to another place around London. Um, so I'd probably say, I mean, I really enjoy unit managing. I do really enjoy it. I think I'm going to stay with it for as long as I can. I think no doubt I'd love to dabble in a location department and maybe think about moving towards an ALM position at some point. Um, but yeah, I'm quite quite happy with everything at the moment, really. So I'm just looking to enjoy your time off and yeah, take the next job when you find choose another to. good job. Hopefully, yeah. it's it's quite a fun job. I think what makes a big difference is working on something that you believe in. So if there's a film that you can say, do you know what? Like I've just I've just finished this series called Mr. Loverman, and it has there are there's a great moral compass leading the story, right? And I think working on something that you can be proud on as a storyline that exposes truths and realities towards the world, I think, it, you know, just, just being a part of something that you're quite passionate about makes a big difference. Mm. So, you know, if there's a cool job that you think's out there, go and get it. I'm waiting for my next one, so let's see what comes. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks so much, Marcus. It's been a pleasure as well. Hopefully I'll see you again soon. Yeah, this has been Filmmaking Framed.